Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Can anybody tell me what is special about today? Palm Sunday, yes, it is Palm Sunday. Some of you are just thinking, it's Sunday, that's special enough in its own right, but no, it's Palm Sunday, it's the day in the Christian calendar where we remember Jesus' public entrance into Jerusalem, which begins what has now become known as Holy Week, the kind of week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, which is commemorated by what festival? Easter, which is in one week's time. So if you've never made that connection that Palm Sunday is always one week before Easter, now there you go, a little bit of useful information, okay? So next Sunday, Easter Sunday, today is Palm Sunday. Anybody know why it's called Palm Sunday? They waved palms, yes. So the obvious answer is the answer here. There's no trick questions, all right? They waved palms when Jesus came into Jerusalem. It's also known as the triumphal entry. So it's called Jesus' triumphal entry. That's another name for Palm Sunday. And interestingly, triumphal entries were something that happened reasonably regularly back in ancient times. It was basically a a ceremonial entry by a person, often into a city, normally like a a military leader or a conqueror who's come into a city and is basically like, yeah, thanks guys, I've just defeated all your enemies. I'm here, celebrate me. And that's essentially what a triumphal entry was. So Jesus is not the only person to ceremonially enter a city in triumph. Lots of people did it back then. And I just want to start, maybe it's a bit of a different way of starting a sermon, but I want to start this morning by talking about someone else's triumphal entry. So 60, or 76 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem in 30 AD, in 46 BC, this guy, have we got it? Julius Caesar entered Rome, and you can imagine there was a lot of pomp and ceremony and celebrating, and basically, he entered Rome, his triumphal procession, celebrating a mighty triumph. He basically defeated all his enemies, and he was essentially now the dictator of the Roman Empire. He just unified everything. His chariot was followed by a long train of captives, people who he'd captured in his wars and his battles. We read that his soldiers, on that day he arrived, gave away more than 2,000 tons of gold and silver to the people of the city, who were obviously delighted. It's great, free gold, free silver. The city, when he arrived, was full of parties and games, all designed to proclaim one clear message, and that was this. Julius Caesar is in complete control of the Roman Empire. That's what the procession was designed to communicate. Now, the Jews expected their Messiah's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to be no less impressive than Caesar's whenever it came. After all, a hundred years before Julius Caesar's entrance into Rome in 164 BC, a Jewish priest and general called Judas Maccabeus, you may not have heard of him before, he triumphantly rode into Jerusalem after liberating Israel from the oppressive Seleucid regime. This was an oppressive regime which had oppressed the Israelites for a long time. He defeated them. He rides into Jerusalem like, right, I've beaten your enemies. Here I am. And it's interesting that when he arrived into Jerusalem in 164 BC, the people of Jerusalem lined the streets to welcome him as their saviour. That's what they did. Now, the the Apocrypha book, um, 2 Maccabees, 
um, which Apocrypha is a number of books that are written. They're not biblical, but they are written around that time. The Apocrypha book, 2 Maccabees, chapter 10, verse 7, says this about the moment when Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem. It says, the people carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy paraded around singing grateful praises to him, Judas Maccabeus. And what he did when he arrived in Jerusalem was he went straight to the temple and he cleared the temple of all the idols and restored worship of the one true God in the temple. And Jews today still commemorate this moment when he did that in 164 BC. And it's commemorated by the festival of Hanukkah, which is celebrated every year still by Jews. Now, notice anything familiar from Judas Maccabeus's triumphal entry. Notice anything there? Palms, waving palms, yeah, going to the temple, clearing it. Sounds a lot like Jesus' triumphal entry, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like his. Well, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was very similar to Judas Maccabeus's, but It was also very different to his in a number of key areas. And these differences tell us a lot about the character of the kingdom that Jesus was going to establish. So we're going to read the passage this morning, which describes Jesus coming into Jerusalem. It's included in all four Gospels. So we're going to read the one in Matthew. Um, Matthew 21 verses 1 to 17 tells us how Jesus came in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So it'll appear on the screen behind me or you can follow in your Bibles as well. It says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So there you have the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem, healed by the crowds as king and savior. And Jesus' uh, entrance to Jerusalem here, this account, I think it shows us two big differences between Jesus and his kingdom and 
every other king and kingdom that there has ever been in the history of the world, okay? Two massive differences, and we see it here in this passage. Firstly, we see in this passage that Jesus comes in meekness. Jesus comes in meekness, okay? Not many world leaders you can think of. Meekness describes them. No, it's more pride, arrogance, power, all that kind of stuff. No, Jesus comes in meekness. And secondly, Jesus has ultimate authority. No world leader has ultimate authority, but Jesus has ultimate authority. I just want to look at these two things, and then we're going to finish, and we're going to hand back to the guys to lead us in worship. So firstly, Jesus comes in meekness. Now, it's interesting, the, the word most used to describe Caesar, Julius Caesar, and Judas Maccabeus' reign was ruthlessness. If you were going to describe their reigns in one word, it would be ruthlessness. Julius Caesar, I mean, there were so many stories, but I'll share this one. Julius Caesar was so ruthless in battle that at one time when he was besieging rebels in what was known as the Dordogne region of France, that's what it would be called now, he waited until the people he was fighting, their water supply went out, then they surrendered, and then he got all the survivors and he lined them up and he cut off all their hands. That's what he did to the survivors, okay? That's how ruthless Julius Caesar was. Now, Maccabeus, Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus wasn't actually Judas Maccabeus' surname. Maccabeus was his nickname, okay? Maccabeus comes from Maccabah, which means sledgehammer. He was given the nickname sledgehammer because of how ruthless he was in defeating the Seleucid armies. You see, Caesar and Maccabeus were ruthless. That is how they got their power. They were proud, they were arrogant, they were power hungry and willing to do anything to stay in power, even to the extent of cutting off their enemies' hands. And, and we can see their power hungriness in their triumphal entries. We can see that in how they came in, the train of captives and all that. And the weird thing is about Caesar and Julius Maccabeus, they weren't unusual for their day. These weren't unusually ruthless leaders. That's how leaders ruled back then. They were ruthless. And you might argue, argue that leaders today are equally ruthless. We just don't see as much of it. But you could argue that. But ruthlessness is what characterized their reigns. But then when we look at Jesus, oh, contrast their reigns with Jesus. You look at Jesus and he comes in meekness. Okay. Now, the really sad thing about the word meekness is it rhymes with weakness, okay? Meekness has nothing to do with weakness, okay? They're completely different, all right? I'm going to give you a definition of meekness, okay? Meekness is humility toward God and towards others, and it is having the right or the power to do something, but refraining for the benefit of someone else. So when Jesus hung there on the cross, did he have the right, did he have the power to summon a legion of angels, destroy everybody and just walk off the cross? Of course he did, but he didn't do that. He stayed there. Why? For someone else. Who? Us. To die for the sin of the world. That's meekness right now, right there. And we see Jesus' meekness in his entrance to Jerusalem. Okay? Jesus chooses not a mighty war horse or a chariot but a donkey. And he doesn't just choose any donkey. He chooses a donkey so young that it has never been ridden on before. Now, Jewish kings had ridden donkeys before. Solomon came into Jerusalem on a donkey, but no king had ever ridden a baby one, a foal or a colt. This was new. I mean, it shows the meekness of Jesus. 
Also, Jesus' meekness. We see Jesus' meekness coming into Jerusalem and the fact that he comes with no weapons in his hands. He's not forcing people into submission, but he's inviting them to voluntarily submit to his rule. We see his meekness as he comes into Jerusalem because he establishes his kingdom not by slaughtering people, but by being slaughtered himself. Complete opposite to every other leader. He doesn't proudly distribute gold and silver like Caesar, but what does he do instead? No, he pours out his blood at the cross. That's what Jesus, that's the meekness of Jesus. We see his meekness in his entrance in the fact that he doesn't come proudly from the battlefield when he comes into Jerusalem. Look, I've defeated all the enemies. No, but he arrives to humbly go to the battlefield, which is the cross to do battle with sin and death. And he doesn't process and run in front of a train of captives, but he lays down his life to set the captives free. And that is you and me. And that is why the meekness of Jesus is a beautiful thing. It is a thing that we can hold up and say, wow, that is one of the best things about Jesus and about being a Christian. So that's the first difference we see from Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. Different from every other ruler and reign in this world. The second thing we see from Jesus um, arriving is that Jesus has ultimate authority. He doesn't just have authority, he has ultimate authority. Now, no leader, no military leader ever has ultimate authority, okay? They may try and convince people they have. They may think they have, but they don't. And the reason military leaders back then had all this stuff at their triumphal possessions was to give the impression that they had ultimate authority. You know, so Caesar having all the gold and all that that kind of stuff, he's trying to give people the impression he has ultimate authority. But he doesn't. I mean, we see it today, don't we? When they have those big military parades, you know? You see North Korea and they parade all their nuclear weapons. They're trying to say, I've got ultimate authority. That's what they're trying to convince people of. But no leader has that. Those leaders back then, Caesar, Julius Maccabees, they were always much weaker and more vulnerable than it seemed. Now, we know that Caesar, two years after Caesar arrived into Rome in his triumphal procession, two years after that, all the pomp and ceremony, he was stabbed to death by his friends. Okay, the Ides of March, you've probably read about it. Judas Maccabeus, two years again, after he rode into Jerusalem victorious, he was killed in battle. Neither of them had ultimate authority. Yet, Jesus has ultimate authority. And we see it in this account. He has ultimate authority to challenge and confront the religious leaders, which we see in verses 15 to 16. He has ultimate authority, and I love this, to call the temple his house. You notice that? You know, get all this stuff out of the temple. He doesn't say that. He says, get all this stuff out of my house. You know, this is my house. Get out of my house. I mean, it's just, what? We see that in verse 13. He has ultimate authority to heal the sick. I mean, you don't notice this in this passage. There is this one little verse in the middle where he just heals a bunch of lame and blind people. And then we move on to the next bit. But he does that, verse 14. He has ultimate authority to judge, okay? Not the most popular one, but he does. Later on in the, in the passage, in verses 18 to 22, we didn't read this bit. It's the next bit in the passage. What Jesus does is he brings judgment on the nation of Israel, symbolized by a fig tree. And basically what happened was the leaves were all there. They were on the tree, looked like there should be fruit on it, but there was no fruit. 
And Jesus instantly withers the fig tree as a picture of what would happen to Israel if they rejected him. So Jesus has ultimate authority to judge. You know, you often hear people say, oh, don't judge me, you know, or I don't like to be judged. There's only one person who can do the judging, and that is Jesus, because he can perfectly judge, unlike all of us. And finally, Jesus has ultimate authority to die for the sin of the world. Okay, now, let me explain how this passage shows Jesus' ultimate authority to die for the sin of the world. You might be thinking, okay, where are you going with this? Well, bear with me, all right? Now, we know from John chapter 12 that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem four days before Passover festival. Now, that would have been, he would have arrived on the 10th of Nisan. Nisan is a Hebrew month, okay? So 10th of Nisan, that's when he arrived, four days before Passover. So the 10th of Nisan, when Jesus arrived, according to Exodus 12, verse 3, was the day when the Passover lambs were to be herded into the city to be sacrificed at Passover four days later. Passover was always to happen on the 14th of Nisan. And we read this, Exodus 12, 3 says this, um, we read about this, about Passover, how Passover was to be observed. The people are told, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, 10th of Nisan, Hebrew month of Nisan, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So 14th of Nisan, four days later, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So when Passover, the first Passover, when the, the, the Israelites were, were leaving Egypt and God said, take the lamb, slaughter it, put it over your doorposts, and the angel of death passed by, and then they left Egypt. They were told this is how to do it. From now on, when you commemorate this, you bring the lambs in four days beforehand, you look after them into Jerusalem, and then you slaughter them on the 14th of Nisan. And that's what they'd be doing for 1,500 years until Jesus comes. That's what they were doing. So 1,500 years, 1,500 years after the first Passover, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey on the 10th of Nisan. Now, Matthew 21, bear with me, okay? I'm going somewhere with this. I promise you, yes, I promise you. You're like, okay, get to it, Andy, hurry up. This is where you have the people coming. Okay, <laughs> worship leaders and anchors always have the little, have the little, the, the little contact where they kind of, okay, get on, move it on, come on, hurry up. So, you know, someone like, okay, get there. But basically, Matthew 21, verse eight. So our passage here says, most of the crowd, we read it earlier, spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, this act, clothes on the road, branches on the road, this act was reserved for kings and conquerors. Okay, everybody knew that. That's what you do for a king and a conqueror. They knew what they were doing there. Now, we read in two kings that King Jehu, they did that for him. So this is something that was done. People knew what they were doing when they put their cloaks and the branches on the ground before Jesus. But even though they saw the significance of that, of what they were doing, the people here, they missed the full significance of the circumstances of Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem, okay? Because two things were happening when Jesus came into Jerusalem. But the people, they only saw one, okay? Now, the first, first thing that happened, which the people saw, was Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, which you can read in Zechariah 9, verse 9, saying, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. So this prophecy is like, when the Messiah comes, he's going to come gentle and he's going to come on a donkey, okay? The people see that. They see Jesus come on a donkey, they're like, okay, Messiah time. This is what's happening, okay? 
This was a prophecy the Jews knew well, okay? So when Jesus passed through the gates on that donkey, they knew what they were doing when they raised those palm branches. They put the palms on the ground. They knew what they were doing. They were openly proclaiming Jesus as Savior and King. That's what drove the religious leaders mad because they knew what was going on. Now, they were declaring him Savior and King in the sense that they thought their Savior and King was going to hand out swords and help them defeat the Romans, okay? So they didn't get the whole picture of what he was going to do. They didn't get the fact that the Savior and King was going to die on the cross, but they got the fact the Savior is here, the King is here, the Messiah is here. They got that. The second thing that was happening, which they didn't see, was the significance of when Jesus arrived on the 10th of Nisan, the same day as the sacrificial lambs always arrived in Jerusalem. And that was no accident that he arrived on the same day. Now, it's estimated that on that day, 10th of Nisan, when Jesus was arriving into Jerusalem, 250,000 lambs arrived into Jerusalem on the same day, okay? So Jesus was not the only person who arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He arrived and 250,000 lambs arrived at the same time. Now, I don't know if Jesus was swamped and I don't know if they arrived earlier or later, but they arrived on the same day as Jesus. So Jesus and the sacrificial lambs arrived on the same day. And his entrance on that day pointed to God's selection of Jesus as the final Passover lamb to be slaughtered for the sin of the world. Because just a few days later, on 14th of Nisan, those 250,000 lambs were being sacrificed in the temple courts, according to God's instruction in Exodus 12. And at the same time, Jesus, the final Passover lamb, was being nailed to a cross. And all this points to the fact that Jesus had ultimate authority as the final Passover lamb to die for the sin of the world. It's God saying, that's my guy, okay? That's the one I'm going to do it through. And that's what he's saying. So Jesus comes in meekness. It's a beautiful thing. But Jesus has ultimate, ultimate authority. And if you look at verses 12 to 14, in your passage, there's a beautiful picture of the meekness and the authority of Jesus coming together. What happens is Jesus has just showed his authority by confronting the merchants in the temple, turning over the tables, the whole thing. And then, but moments later, we see his meekness as, as the blind and the lame come to him to be healed. Now, despite his anger at the money changers, the lame and the blind, you know, you'd think they'd be a bit afraid of Jesus. All right, we'll give him a bit of time out here. You know, he's a bit angry. No, no, they're not afraid. They weren't afraid of approaching him at all because they knew he was the only answer for them. And they come to him confidently and he welcomes them and he heals them. And that is what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God welcomes the rejected and it welcomes the outcasts. It rejects, it welcomes the down down and out. It rejects, it welcomes those who don't feel they have anything to offer. It welcomes the poor. It welcomes all of those people who just know they need Jesus and come to him and want him in their life. You know, the blind and the lame weren't allowed into the temple. They weren't actually allowed, according to tradition, into the temple. But Jesus, in his meekness and authority, makes a way for them to come to God. And he can do the same for us today. He makes a way for us 
barred from the presence of God to come into the presence of God. And that is the good news about being a Christian. Amen? Amen. Amen. And, you know, I think for all of us, the challenge for us is to hold the meekness and the authority of God together. They don't seem to go together, do they? You know, lots of us like an image of Jesus being meek, or some of us like the, the powerful Jesus. Oh, he's the, you know, but actually, we've got to hold them together. It's a lot easier to focus on one or the other, but the challenge is to hold them both together. I love, I don't anyone ever watched Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia? Um, it's basically, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is basically based on the story of Jesus. And Aslan, the character, is based on Jesus. And I love the way one of the little girls in the story says, Aslan, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. You know, and that just shows the meekness and the authority of Jesus all in one go. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. You know, as we draw to a close here, what strikes me, I don't know if it strikes you, when you, when you read this passage and as we come to Easter, you know, you think, wow, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, they shouted Hosanna to the son of David. You know, palm branches everywhere, cloaks in the ground, everything, they're going for it. Then on Thursday, they're shouting crucify him. I mean, what, what has happened? What, is, what has gone through these people's minds? I mean, come on. And then as I was mulling over it, I'm thinking, you know, can't we also be like this a bit sometimes though? You know, like one moment we're praising the Lord as King and Savior, especially when we see him as sort of meek and lowly and riding on a donkey. And then the next moment we're rejecting him because he claims to be able to judge and to punish. And we're like, oh, I don't really like that so much. Yeah, we can often do the same. Now, I, I think I'm, I'm almost done, promise. Um, I was thinking like, what, what do we take from this? What's the example we take from this passage this morning? And I think the example for us to follow from this passage is, is not, the, not the, the crowds or the Pharisees. Our example to follow here is the blind and the lame. Because number one, what did they do? They recognized their need. Number two, they recognized Jesus' authority to meet that need. They recognized this guy has the authority for sickness. He has the authority to heal us. They saw that clearly. But they also recognized Jesus' meekness. They recognized he wouldn't turn them away or rebuke them if they came to him. So they came to him and they were welcomed with open arms. And you know what? We can too. I don't know what situation you are in life, but you can come to Jesus and he will welcome you. He will not turn you away. I don't know what you need today, but you can come with your needs to Jesus. He will not turn you away. I don't know what hurt you have in your life or confusing thing or whatever. Bring it this morning. Come to Jesus this morning and bring it to him. He wants you to come near to him. In the Old Testament, now I'm ad-libbing, okay? And this is where Colin gets nervous because I'm off script. But in the Old Testament... Moses, when the burning bush is burning and, and, you know, God's presence in the burning bush, Moses is told, don't come near. You can't come near, okay? But then in the New Testament, what are we told? We can come near and we can come near confidently. And when we do come near, we get grace and we get mercy as we approach our Savior.